You're listening to So You Want to Be a Photographer with Gina Militia, one of Australia's leading portrait celebrity and lifestyle photographers. With over 25 years' experience in the industry, Gina is a pro photographer who regularly travels the world shooting for some of the country's top magazines and advertisers. She is author of four best-selling books on photography, runs workshops and mentors aspiring photographers all around the world. In conversation with journalist, interviewer and budding amateur photographer Valerie Koo, Gina reveals what it takes to build a successful photography business, provides a sneak peek into life behind the lens and talks about her tips and techniques to get the perfect shot. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 259 of So You Want to Be a Photographer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Gina Militia. How are you Gina? I'm great, Val. How are you going? I'm good. What's happening in Gina world? Oh, it's been a big week. We're working on a lot of telly at the moment and I've just uh, finished feeding half the wildlife around my area. (laughs) So I've just put a new bird feeder out so that I can cover the birds. Possums have been fed. Animals have been fed. I'm ready to get into this podcast. <laughs> if you're so friendly with all of the wildlife yeah. around there, did they mm. um, leave lots of poo around your place? Uh, the possums do, yeah, mm. yeah. But it's like it's contained. Right. So it's it's they contained. Go, they have a possum they're, toilet? They're, it's not that they have a toilet, but they're just, mm. uh, you know, the way they do it, it's easily removed. It doesn't, it doesn't cause me any grief. So okay. we have a good relationship. I, I like having them around. They've all got names. Oh <laughs> made houses God. for them. I feed them. It's the place to be, Val. Okay, party time at Gina's exactly. house. Exactly. All right. So you're actually listening to uh, So You Want to Be a Photographer. And in fact, this week's topic is how to photograph wildlife with our guest, Scott Bourne. But before we get to that, we have a listener question. This is from Chris. And Chris lives just outside of Sarnia, Ontario, Canada. Now, Chris says, interesting things to shoot around here have the ship traffic on the St. Clair River, which connects connects Lake Huron to Lake Erie. The main industry around here is oil and gas, so there are some interesting possibilities with the plants at dusk with all their lights. I'm looking to transition into having a photography business, and I found your So You Want to Be a Photographer podcast. I'm so pumped and excited from listening to you and Valerie. I'm only up to episode 14. Wow, you got a long way to go, Chris. <laughs> But I have learned so much and can't stop listening to you guys. It's very inspiring. For my birthday, my girlfriend gave me passes to the upcoming air show in London, Ontario, and got me into the photo line. I'm very stoked. It will be amazing to be that close and possibly get some amazing shots. Do you have any suggestions that will make the day more successful? I shoot with a Canon D30. I have a Sigma 120 to 400, F 4.5 to 5.6 lens, and a Tamron 18 to 400, f 3.5 to 6.3 my thoughts were to use the sigma as it will let more light in much heavier lens though but that's why we make monopods right um and chris also has a canon 50 millimeter 1.8 lens and a 10 to 18 millimeter lens um he says i thought they would be fun with static displays at the show wow okay gina so this is interesting because this is 
aircraft. <laughs> yeah. Very similar and, to photographing birds, actually. So, yeah, but well, yeah. very uh, excited for Chris. And what a great girlfriend to get him that present for his birthday. So, um, cool. I'd, I'd love to be at that show, too. So, I think you've got can enough. I, to- can I start with a tip? Go to your local or find your local plane spotters group or plane spotters society because the very talented person Ra who often <laughs> edits this podcast is actually a plane spotter and I've learned so much about the behavior of plane spotters and where they go for the best vantage points and they also understand how planes behave and what to expect from them so it can't hurt to get some goss or some intel from your local plane spotting group, especially about which planes are the sexy ones and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah that, that was uh, one of my tips too, Val. So look at you go. <laughs> it was great. But I was going to say uh, leading up to the, to the air show, I would get out and either practice your focusing on birds that are mm. in flight or get yourself to your local airport uh, you know, plane spotting site, and they're all they're all listed. You just get on Google. Like I know, I went to the Melbourne one and and uh, photographed some planes here myself. So uh, there's some they're... secret ones that only the plane spotters know, though. Yeah, but they've got like little clubs online that you can kind of uh, get to get the intel from. But that is a great place to start in terms of getting practice before the show. In terms of the show. Um, what you want to do, these are my suggestions, and I, I make sure that uh, when you get there, you want to position yourself so that you have the sun to your back so that you're photographing the planes when they're front lit rather than trying to photograph backlit planes. Although you can mix it up on the day and maybe some silhouettes against a setting sun if they are flying uh, at, at that time of day could be really cool as well. So, But for the most part, I think their planes are going to look better when they're front lit rather than backlit. Now, I like your suggestion, uh, Chris, of having a monopod, but I think in this case it might be more of a hindrance because that, from my understanding, air shows, it just all happens all at once. There's just planes all over the place and you want to be following them around. And particularly when you're working with zoom lenses, longer lenses, your field of view is so narrow that you might find that you're having to move around too much and the monopod's just going to get in your way. I don't know how crowded you're going to be as well by other, other photographers. So I would get your camera handheld and just crank up that ISO and uh, so so that you've got the freedom to do the um, before you start doing the uh, in the air shots, you've got an opportunity to get lots of static shots. So what they what they do is they the, they'll set up little displays all around the place. So there might be different planes with, and sometimes they'll have their crews around them. So you've got an opportunity to get some great shots of those static shots on the ground and try and get shots with the crew in them, and then also look at getting different angles so you want to come in tight and get details like the the I don't even know plain terms about like I can say propeller <laughs> bits and pieces of the wheel and the wingy bits and all of that and get those the details engine. the engines and and like little even like macro shots could be really interesting get the details but also shoot super wide the rivets the well rivets. yes see the rivets and it can also mm. be very sexy you could get reflections in windscreens of planes mm. of other stuff going on so try and think creatively when you when you're doing those static shots rather than just going that I'm going to get everything in shoot really 
low, shoot really high, wide and long and get a whole variety of shots for those for those ones. When you're doing the actual air display, um, you're going to get probably two different kinds of planes. So you'll get the newer, faster jet ones that just fly really fast. They don't actually have moving parts. And then there's usually they'll, they'll bring out the um, vintage planes, which – which have those old propellers, right? Have you ever flown on one of those with the propellers, Val? No. It's the scariest. I did a shoot on some little island and I flew like a normal jumbo jet to get to the mainland and then they're like, okay, we're going to a plane to take you to the island and it was like a Mm four-seater and then they handed out this parcel to everyone and they're like i'm like what's that they're like that's your parachute i'm like (laughs) no i don't really want to go on this and we just oh it was terrible but anyway those planes with the propellers um you want to shoot those a little bit differently so for the fast jets with the moving parts i would suggest that you shoot long like you've got your 200 to 400 millimeter lens and you want to Crank up your ISO so that you can shoot at one one thousandth of a second or higher because you want to try and get those fast planes, jets, uh, frozen. You you don't want to have any movement. And to do that, uh, it's probably a good idea to shoot in burst mode. So you've got the shutter. You can do one shutter, click, 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 or you can get them to do burst. And it depends on your camera. I'm not exactly sure what your D30 does, but it might take five frames every time you press, you know, so that you can, you'll definitely, do you like the sound effects? Yeah, good. <laughs> you'll, def, you'll definitely get something if you shoot in burst mode. So the other thing that you want to be aware of when you, there is going to be so much happening. You don't want to be the guy that runs out of memory cards halfway through. Oh. So you want to make sure you've got stacks of cards. And some people, when they're shooting this sort of stuff, action and sport, when they're doing a lot of burst mode is they also um, opt to shoot in uh, high JPEG rather than RAW so the camera's not having to buffer to write those RAW files and so you can get more on the card so that's maybe a call that you'll need to make how much how fast you're going to be shooting and how much of that continuous shooting you're going to be doing. Uh, In terms of the focus you want to Use continuous focus, so your autofocus is going to track that moving uh, object in the sky, the, the, the metal bird that's flying above you. And you maybe, rather than using a single point of focus, so one focus point, you can actually extend the focus points. And so you might want to have a cluster of maybe four, so you've got a slightly bigger area that you can focus with and then track the track the plane that way. So that, that might help you there. Um, when you're shooting something like, say, a helicopter, so that's got a propeller or a mm. plane with those little propellers, what you want to do is if you shoot, at, say, at one one thousandth of the second, you're going to freeze the action of those propellers and it's just going to look like that plane is like parked in the sky, really. Stuff, yeah. So just to or give it ground. a bit of interest, uh, try slowing down your shutter speed so you get a bit of movement in those um, propellers. And that's going to give, give, make your shot look a little bit more dynamic, giving it a little bit of uh, motion blur. So as I said, and also the thing to do, get yourself to your local park where there's birds or a local airport where there's planes and practice photographing, uh, you know, tracking planes as they're taking off and landing. Great. And just for shits and giggles, 
go hang out with those plane spotters so because they're so funny and so weird it's sometimes. no it's cool i think it's, it's great cool. i've know, done that too it's great i know but like in the office for example ra will um like a plane will fly overhead and she's there working at a desk and then she'll just goes she just goes that's qf12 and then another plane will fly over and she goes that's delta 290 she there just goes she knows what they the all sound. are yeah amazing <laughs> amazing good on you ra love your work Yes. All right. So lots of gems there and some uh, really good advice from Gina. And of course, if you're in the gold community over at GinaMilitia.com, you get this kind of advice on a regular basis. So if you want to find out a bit more about the gold community, have a listen to this. This podcast is brought to you by the gold community. I'm passionate about helping the members of the gold community. They're amazing photographers and I love seeing them progress in leaps and bounds. Here's what BJ Brito had to say. I think with you, the thing is, it's almost like I'm talking to a friend and your responsiveness is so amazing. It's like I have my own personal coach all the time. Hey, Gina, how can I set this up? Okay, and Gina is like right there discussing this with me and you know setting this up for me. That's really amazing. And it, it's such a big help, especially like on the days, like I mentioned, my first shoot, you know, that was, that's where I realized the value that you bring with this whole setup. And I'm so thankful to have you as part of my journey that you've helped me through. And I look forward to, you know, being working with you through this next five years or Thanks. more. Thank you, VJ. It's like it's my greatest joy seeing everyone, um, you know, progress and uh, you know shine as photographers. And I've got big plans for you. So uh, thanks again. If you'd like to find out more about the Gold Community, just go to GinaMilitia.com and click on Join the Community. All right, our topic this week is how to photograph wildlife with our guest Scott Bourne. I always like the name Bourne because I, I keep thinking of, you know, Jason Bourne. Yeah, Bourne anyway, Identity, yeah. Um, and his images are incredible. I mean, wildlife photography is something that I really admire because I love animals, but I have to say I'm not the type to actually go venture out in safari or into the desert or into the depths of the jungle or wherever to nat- to see them in their natural habitat because, you know, yeah. lazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> But I do like looking at beautiful pictures and his pictures are stunning. So Scott Bourne is an Olympus visionary. He's a professional wildlife photographer and author and lecturer, and he specializes in birds. I love birds. He was one of the founders of This Week in Photo and also founder of Photofocus.com and co-founder of the new Picture Methods podcast and blog. So he's been involved with photography for decades, literally decades, and has appeared in more than 200 publications. He's also been a trainer on Linda and at conferences and events around the world um, with every photographic association that you can think of. He was also one of the first photographers ever to receive the designation Apple Certified Professional Trainer for Apple's Aperture. So, yeah, what was it like talking to Scott, Gina? Oh, amazing. Oh, there's so many aha moments. He just drops so many knowledge bombs on us in this episode, Val. Brilliant. So much great stuff, which, you know, someone uh, with uh, 40 years experience, and I think you guys are going to uh, love this. Uh, I, I really enjoy it. I've come away with uh, so much knowledge myself and 
so much more respect for wildlife photographers and I think it's probably uh, one of the hardest things you can do and it's something that requires so much patience and uh, Scott shares a, a fantastic story about how he share, he spent uh, 13 years chasing the one shot. So what lengths would you guys go to to get the perfect shot? So shall we have a listen? Yep, let's have a listen to Scott Bourne. Scott Bourne, welcome to the show. How are you going? Hi, it's good. It's good. I'm glad to be here. And, and, you know, I don't have any shrimp on the Barbie, but I wish I did. <laughs> I'm uh, really excited to chat with you today. Before we start, where in the world are you? I'm, uh, I'm right now in the Seattle, Washington area. Fantastic. Uh, now, the thing I, I uh, stumbled across uh, a lot of your work, you quite, uh, you've been prolific on, on, on the web for years and years and years and uh, written some beautiful stuff, created amazing podcasts, with tons and tons of content. But the thing that, that uh, the, the quote that got me is that uh, you said that photography is something you never master in terms of being the best. Photography is just something you do because you have to. Now, I feel that way. For me, photography is like breathing. Yeah. Is yeah. It, what makes a good photographer, Scott? I think uh, you're, you're starting on the front end of that road right there with your question, and it's basically this answer is someone who has to do it, someone who has a story to tell, someone who has a point of view. This is extremely important. Unfortunately, in the days of the internet, people care about megapixels and sensor size, and that's all the very last thing they should consider. Instead, they should be thinking about what story do I want to tell, what's my unique point of view, and why do I want to tell it? And if, if you can't get to that point then the rest of it's just an exercise in futility as far as I'm concerned. I, I, ta I audited a, a, taught an audit class at a college once where everyone would come in and I put a note under each student's desk and it was a college level class. And I said, I know the first question you're going to ask me. And someone raised their hand and said, what camera should I buy? I said, everybody reach under and grab the note I put under your desk, open it up and read it aloud. It says the first question will be, what camera should I buy? <laughs> <laughs> and then I tell them that's the wrong question. And the class is about how to become a professional photographer. They go, well, how can I be a professional photographer without a camera? I said, I have a better question for you. How can you be a professional photographer without a client? Get a client. I'll help you get a camera. And uh, so it starts this whole conversation about thinking about this from the opposite end of how most people approach it. Most people start with the gear, then they get more gear because they have gear acquisition syndrome and then they get more gear and then they start to figure out what it's all about. And then maybe 10 years down the road, they start to see, Oh, this is what I should have been thinking about. It really doesn't matter what camera you use. It matters what story you want to tell. And you describe yourself as a storyteller too. Is that right? Yeah. I think that's the number one job I, I have. I look at those of us that do this for a living. I know you do. And I do. I look at us as high priests and priestesses of memory protection. Oh, that's, that's our job. Beautiful. That's a beautiful mm -hmm. quote. I love Thank that. You. Yeah, we're high priests and priestesses of memory protection. So we we have to tell the story of the memories that we encounter, both our own and those of the people and places and things that we photograph. So you never know when you take a photograph of a certain subject or at a certain place 
if maybe that won't be the last photograph. And unfortunately, that's happened in my life. I've photographed people, places, and things that shortly thereafter were no longer with us. So it's very important that I pay attention to telling that story for, you know, everyone that comes along and wants to see what that person, place, or thing was about. Fantastic. Now, you've been doing this for over 40 years. Translation, I'm old. Um, <laughs> before that, I can hear the the beautiful radio voice that you have. You were in radio, is that right? Well, in high school, I started out at WNAP Stereo 93 Naptown Radio. Which was... I hope you were going to do that because I love – why is it that – why do they have to have that radio voice? Why do you have to put on that um... – You don't. You don't these days, but yeah. back in the day, everybody was Wolfman Jack was who we all modeled. Yeah. So, you know, you had to have a really big voice and we had this thing called an Optimod processor that made your voice really big. And you know, nobody, but nobody will sell your brand new Buick Rover for less money than Bob Catters and be like, nobody. And uh, <laughs> it was, it was just, it was something I was drawn to. And we played album oriented rock, which is a format that doesn't exist anymore, but we played whole sides of records. And that's what ended up leading me into podcasting so many years later with my friend Leo Laporte on the twit.tv network where I hosted several shows including Mac Break Weekly with him for more than three years. I'm still on every once in a while. I was on the new screensavers a few months ago. That all stemmed from both he and I having big radio backgrounds and bonding over that and then I realized hey I could use this for photography. Fantastic. Just on that, so you talk about when you were in that those early years of radio, you all modelled yourself on uh, Wolfman Jack, right? Because he was the big thing. So everyone says, okay, he's he's got something, and that makes him successful uh, and popular. I see the same thing happen in photography where you'll see someone who will develop a particular style and then even more so today, people will see that and they'll copy it. It'll be, well, okay, this is what makes an image successful and there's been all these trends, you know, uh, let me just pull out, you know, say maybe HDR or, or like a certain way of uh, you see on Instagram where you'll see the model leading another model through an image and then suddenly everybody is doing that. Um, so there's this idea of trends and copying. What do you think about all of that? I think that when you're starting out and you don't know what story you want to tell or how to tell it or what your why is, that's pretty much all you can do. But where maturity and success, professionalism and craftsmanship comes in the art of photography is when you start to put those things away and move towards your own story and your own way of telling it. Now, all of these things are valuable to inform you. You may, I, I would encourage people not to copy, but perhaps be inspired by other work. That's fine. Um, I didn't copy Wolfman Jack. I was inspired by him. I couldn't have copied him if I tried. But when I was doing all that, I really didn't know what I was doing. I was just, I sounded good on the radio, so they let me have a microphone. Now I understand that the value of the microphone is being able to share my heart being able to tell people how I care about what they're doing and I want to help them do it. It doesn't matter what my voice sounds like as long as I'm good at that. Hmm. So, that, you know, with photography, I've, I mean, one of the advantages of being my age, I've seen all this stuff happen. Like I remember the first time a wedding photographer had a shot where there was deliberate lens flare with the bride in the shot. And then you looked up and every wedding photography site had that shot. Right. And now it's like, you know, then there was a, there was a moment in time when 
we were looking at photographs that were slightly out of focus because that was in vogue. And then, you know, then there was the photographs where they were black and white, except it had a red rose that was in color and selective color. And, you know, you can just go on and on and on. And trends are trends. And the problem with trends are is that they become untrendy. Mm. So if you're banked into one that all of a sudden nobody cares about, you're standing on the train station and there's no train coming by. So I think it's good to use these things to inform and educate and inspire yourself. But then you want to move to trying your own techniques, developing your own craftsmanship and coming up with some sort of, of methodology for telling your story. I mean, I'm a bird photographer. I spend lots of time, probably in a healthy amount of time with birds yeah. and everything, everything I do is focused on telling their story. So all the techniques I've developed are focused around that. Do you remember that first day that you decided that this is what I want to do? I want to photograph birds. And uh, what was the what was the lead up to that? <laughs> is this a uh, are we allowed to cuss on this show? <laughs> uh, <laughs> go for your life. I'll just put it like this: It was the, the day I realized I wanted to do it. I said, "Oh crap!" Because I realized <laughs> it's it's like the hardest thing in the world. So let let me recount this for you. I'm photographing small creatures who generally don't want to be anywhere near me. And, oh, yeah, they can fly. So <laughs> compare this to the average wedding photographer who knows that the bride will show up at the appointed time and place. That's pretty much guaranteed. Yeah. But with birds, you know, I, I the whole beauty for me of what I do is in that I have no control over my subjects. None. I have no control over anything other than to be prepared, show up and have, you know, an open heart, a willingness to listen to the birds, feel where they're at, find them and then tell their story. So it's, it's, it's a baffling thing to almost everyone who knows me <laughs> and I get it. It's just, I don't, I don't recommend it to anyone because if it gets into your blood, it is like a drug. You can't help it. And I went out I was actually doing a lot of wildlife photography, doing grizzly bears and mountain lions and wolves and all that kind of stuff. And then I was hanging out with a guy who was doing some bird stuff and I went out and shot birds with him and that was it. It was just like a drug. It was somebody put the needle right in my vein and I didn't care that I was standing next to a 14 foot tall grizzly bear. I was photographing the magpie on the ground next to him. <laughs> and you, you talk about in your artist statement about the um – it's about the thrill of the chase for you. And then when you get the shot, there's almost some sadness that you got there. You got, you, you finally got it. And so from start to finish with some of these maybe more exotic uh, birds, how much planning goes into that? How much actual pre-production before you get that nail, that perfect shot? Well, I'm sort of cursed because I, I've, I do everything via pre-visualization. Hmm. So I will see a picture in my mind's eye. And then I say, okay, now I got to go figure out how to make that. And I'm not a reactionary photographer. I don't walk around, see a bird, point my camera at it, take its picture. I go out with very specific stuff in mind and I have to do the research to find out, okay, what's the place where this could happen? What's the time of year? What kind of species will they, will they be the right species? So my most famous photograph is called Cranes in the Fire Mist. That took 13 years to get that. Wow. And that's a beautiful image. And I'll hopefully try and get a copy of that for the show notes. But can you just describe that image for the, for the listeners? 
Sure. It's it's taken at a place called Bolsque del Apache National Wildlife Refuge in central New Mexico. And it's a place where the United States government has set aside land for these birds to migrate to and from as they're moving north and south on the central flyway. There are four flyways through North America that the birds migrate north and south on. This one's located pretty close to the central flyway, and they stop over on the Rio Grande River there for sustenance as they move north and south, depending on which time of year it is. And I have been photographing there for decades and leading workshops there and speaking there at the Big Crane Festival. It's one of the largest bird photography festivals in the world. And this one year, I had seen a photograph by another photographer in the British, the BBC wildlife competition taken at a similar place, not the same place, that involved some backlit snow geese and and cranes. And there was a, a beautiful kind of orange and yellow hue to it. And I thought, there's a, there's a pond at Bosque where I could make a similar shot, but I wanted my shot to have motion in it. So I found this place called the North Railroad Pond. I went there and I, I did all the research. Okay, I need to have mist. Okay, well, here's what it happens when you, to get mist, you have to have 32 degrees Fahrenheit. I believe that's zero degrees Celsius. Mm-hmm. And that's because the, the warm and cold air have to collide and create the mist. Okay, so that's one thing I needed. I needed to have something that was facing east because I wanted to get it in the sunrise. I needed to have water, and these ponds some years have water, some years don't, So because that's what attracts the birds. They roost on the ponds at night so that their natural enemies, the coyotes, if they start to splash towards them, that'll wake them up and they'll fly away. And then I needed to have a completely cloudless sky because to get the orange and yellow color, you can't have clouds. If you do, then things go purple and green and blue, and it's really cool, but it wasn't the shot I wanted. Right. So I needed to have a cloudless sky. And then the most crazy thing about bird photography is birds fly into, perch into, and land into the wind. So I needed the wind to be coming from a very specific direction. <laughs> <laughs> so that, not, nothing hard about this. I have to fly from Seattle to New Mexico. Every year I would go on Thanksgiving Day, which is a holiday here in the United States that we celebrate. I would fly down there. I would go to this pond. I would sit there and wait and hope that the temperature would be 32 degrees Fahrenheit, that there were no clouds in the sky, that there were birds in the pond, that the wind was out of the west-northwest, and that I could get the shot. And some years, two or three of the things would be there. Some years, none of them would be there. So I would go back every Thanksgiving, year after year after year. And in the 13th year I went, I, I went and saw that conditions were pretty much ripe and I thought, man, I might get this. So I got everything ready to go and sure enough, two birds, which in my vision flew into the shot. And that was the thing I was missing most years. I had static shots of the birds in the pond, but I wanted some birds to fly into the shot to give it some movement. And it happened and I let go of a, uh, you know, about an eight burst round and I, waited patiently for it to come up on the LCD. I saw I had it, and for the first time in my life, I said, woot. That must have been an extraordinary feeling after 13 years, but I, I just, it says so much about you as an artist that you were prepared to go back and continue to go back because you had this vision in your mind's eye about this is the shot I want to get, and you just kept going and going and going, and then that that, that feeling, I mean, what a high. It must have been amazing. It was. But see, the thing is, it's, it's, I don't want to make it sound like I'm some special artist. I don't have a choice here. I just don't. You know, once I had this vision in my mind, it was like a drug. I had to go back. Yeah. I had to get this shot, and it would keep me awake at night. 
So it just took a long time to finally get it. And then I got it. And then it, it took off. It became very popular. I, it was the first time I'd ever, I only had about, I don't know, 20,000 Twitter followers back then. And I just thought, what the heck, instead of selling it through the gallery I'm in where they take half, I'm going to try to make this more accessible. I'll sell it for the price I would get out of the gallery. Yeah. And I'll put it, I'll put it on Twitter in eight days. I sold all hundred prints in the collection. That's amazing. Yeah. So it was, now I very much regret making it a hundred print edition. <laughs> yeah, of course. I still have one that's unsold that I keep from my rainy day fund. And then I have two artist proofs, but yeah, it's a, it was a fairly successful photograph and it's been commercially licensed quite a bit. And I've actually been asked to give whole talks about this at photography conferences. It's, it's, it was a special shot for me and that's the way I work. I have a vision. I then go about trying to replicate it because again, I'm a storyteller. I wanted to tell the story of these sandhill cranes and Ross's geese and snow geese, the three types of birds that were there and the migratory experience they have and what their life is like. And I wanted to do it in such a way that it would be awe-inspiring to the average person that has no interest in birds because that's my real goal is to get people to care about birds. I think there's a real uh, lesson in that for all photographers. Um, I think, you know, I mean, we don't all need to go out and spend 13 years chasing uh, the ultimate shot. But then just the idea of like, even if you're a a portrait photographer, you have an idea in your mind about this is how I want the image to look and and not settling for uh, that that first version. And I I know a lot of... um, beginner photographers will go out and be, as you said, reactive. It's like you'll see something and you'll photograph it. And so next level is to obviously pre-visualize maybe and, and look for all the right elements to come together to get that shot. So you can, you can even do that in your lounge room at home if you're setting up a portrait and you'll add a light. Well, what happens if I take that light away? And what are the, what are the ultimate? So well, what's the equivalent of having mist in the shot or the wind in the right direction? And, and it, over the space of, say, a week, you can keep coming back to that shot if you're working full time and spend five minutes a day just chipping away and chipping away until you get that shot that's in your mind's eye. And I think a lot of people don't do that, that they'll sort of stick to that reactionary version of the shot, which can be great, but I, I, I like what you did. I wish I could spend 13 years chasing a shot. Well, uh, you know, the thing is, I do tell people, can you maybe invest five extra minutes? Hmm. You know, you want to, you want to break down the set. I got it. But like you said, why don't we just take another couple of exposures without this light? Or why don't we move this V flat? Or why don't we do this or that? I mean, the proficiency that you develop when you're a storyteller, because you pre-visualize makes this a little bit easier because you know what you have to do to get what you have to get. And uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Tony Corbell. I think he's one of the best photographers in the world. And I learned a lot about light from him. He's a contemporary and a friend of mine. And, you know, he says being a professional photographer isn't about getting paid. It's about being proficient. Yeah. It's the proficiency of knowing how to get what you get. In other words, knowing that if you make this choice with aperture or this choice with shutter speed or this choice with lens, that you will get that result. That's really what we're talking about. I like to say that beginning photographers who are serious, can, there's 10 rungs to a ladder. They can climb those first nine in a year or two. It's pretty easy if you apply yourself. Hmm. And then it's 30 or 40 years to get from rung nine to rung 10. Yeah, I agree. And that's where the proficiency comes in, where you just know. You see a shot. Like I, I was photographing 
my hobby is is uh, racing, collecting cars. Right. And I was I was with um, Jaguar at a racetrack and uh, photographing my F-Type, and I had my assistant with me, and we, there was a tunnel, and I said, oh, let's take the car and put it in that tunnel because I'm going to get this shot. And he goes, well, that's not going to work. It's way too bright. And I said, no, no, no. What we'll do is we'll just underexpose. We'll go. So when he saw the print, he was like, oh, my God, you totally saw that, and I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> that's because I was trying to tell a story, and I think – if I could share with anybody listening to any of the talks I give, I, I just constantly go back to this. If you want to figure out how, you know, the modicum of success I have, it starts with, I approach every job as if, okay, what's the story? Who cares about the story? Who are the characters in this story? Who's the protagonist? Who's the antagonist? What's the beneficiary of this story going to be? That's how I start to approach breaking down an image. Fantastic. That's a great approach. Um, I want to. I want to. Um, I've got a million questions, but I, I just want to try, try and stick to maybe One wildlife time, photography uh, this time. So, um, I think wildlife photography is often a, a great um, introduction into photography for many beginners. So, so in your opinion, what makes a great wildlife image? Well, my particular style and preference is a simple uncluttered background, preferably plain as can be, where the animal is highlighted in really nice light and we have a full face type portrait of the animal. We get to see them much more closely than we do in real life. And as simple as that sounds, it's hard to accomplish. And people always try to make this harder than it needs to be. But um, I, I basically approach it with, I just want to start with this simple portrait. And all the things I learned as a portrait photographer when I first broke into photography, I apply to wildlife photography. You know, it's the same rules. you got to get the eye sharp. And if there's two eyes and one's away, you got to get the one closest sharp and blah, blah, blah. It, it's, it's everything that I learned in portrait photography, I apply to bird and, and wildlife photography with a, one big exception. In bird photography, you can't do any Rembrandt lighting or anything like that. It's all got to be flat straight over the shoulder light. That's the only way to get published. But uh, everything else you can learn from portrait photography. So with um, wildlife photography, would, uh, would you start out maybe photographing uh, the, the birds around your home or your, your dog or your, your cat just to, to get the hang of, um, you know, autofocus, moving your focus points? And then would, would a good place to start be something like a zoo? Absolutely. I tell people, zoos, every, you know, everyone that lives in the free world lives within 100 miles of a zoo. So go to a zoo and just spend a lot of time there making photographs. I, I don't find that photographing pets and domestic animals is very helpful for wildlife photographers because that's a completely different genre. Mm. Uh, but I do feel like, yeah, going to a zoo, going to rehab centers, um, working with captive animals is the best place to start because, you know, when it comes down to it, like I take an expedition up to, uh, Kaflia Bay, Alaska. I don't know if you know about Timothy Treadwell and the Treadwell diaries. You might want to research it, but he was a Canon photographer that ended up getting eaten by a bear up there. Wow. And I went up there with a group thereafter and, 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 you know, researching that area when you're up in geographic Harbor and they call it geographic Harbor cause it's so beautiful. Um, when you're up there, you're, you know, you're 840 miles from a road. 
So, you know, there, when you, it costs a lot of, it costs most people 10, 20 grand in, to get up there. Right. And, you know, there's no internet service. There's no med now. There's no 911. There's no emergency hospital. There's no stores. You have to bring everything you're going to eat and at, with you and take it out when you leave. But when you're in a place like that, that's not the place to be learning how to use your autofocus points. <laughs> <laughs> no. You want to have that dialed in before you spend the $20,000 to come with me to photograph coastal brown grizzly bears, which are the largest bears in the world, 14 feet tall, and they can run 35 miles an hour from a dead stop, and you can't. Oh, my God. Yeah. So you've, you've got some great tips um, for um, beginners on what to do to avoid. Like, obviously, when you're at a zoo, the, 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 the animals are behind enclosures, either glass or chain mesh or something like that. How do we get around that? Well, I don't know what zoos are like in Australia, um, but in the United States, a lot of zoos have uh, large enclosures where the habitat mirrors what the animal would live in, in in real life. And there's just air between you and them because there's usually a moat or some kind of other system that keeps the animal from coming across. Right. Uh, we actually we actually have one zoo in the area where I live called Northwest Trek, where it's a reverse zoo. You're in a little paddy wagon that drives through and the animals are roaming free. Um, so uh, sometimes you can avoid it that way. But if you have to work through glass or chain link fence, it's pretty simple. If you're using long glass, it's easier. Just put the lens right on the glass, right, right on the glass or right on the fence. It'll disappear. It won't, it won't be there. So would you have a lens hood on when you're doing that or right? No, I, put, I put it right on the, put it right on the glass. Right. That's right a great tip. And then shooting wide open up against the chain mesh. Well, it's not necessarily wide open. It has to do with subject to camera distance. Remember, as subject to camera distance decreases, so does depth of field. So if the animal's close to you, let's say I, I shoot Olympus. I'm an Olympus visionary. I have a, a 300 millimeter F4 IS Pro lens, which has a 600 millimeter field of view. It has a close focusing distance of seven and a half feet. I don't know how many that is in meters. I'm sorry. Um, but if there is an animal close to me in a zoo or behind glass and he's eight feet away, I might need to shoot at F-22 just to get enough depth of field to get his eyes sharp. Because when you're that close, the depth of field is pretty narrow. So right. shooting wide open is more a function of how close are you to the animal and then how much distance is there between the animal and the background. Right. So it's just a matter of uh, getting to know your lens and knowing the limitations and how the focus works with that particular uh, focal length. So practice. Right. Yeah. Well, and, when I started out, when I started out, I didn't have any money. I was so broke, I couldn't afford to pay attention. So, I mean, my long lens was 100 millimeters. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I had to learn how to get close to animals. That's what I ended up doing. I ended up becoming an expert at that. So let's get into gear then. Um, so you, 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 you're working with Olympus uh, now, and have you got um, some maybe entry-level suggestions for a focal length, an ideal focal length to work with shooting wildlife and uh, just some, some sort of uh, settings that you would recommend for a beginner starting out? Well, I, I actually, on the Olympus US website, there's an article I wrote that's uh, bird photography on a budget. People can Google that and see the article. I recommend an EM 10 Mark III and the 75 to 300 kit lens for that. It's around 1200 US dollars or less. And you've got a very capable wildlife combo there. I mean, extremely capable, 
to deliver publication quality. You won't be able to do birds in flight with it, but you'll be able to do pretty much anything else. And uh, it really just boils down to, again, there's no magic setting. It just depends on the story you want to tell. Mm. Again, for me, I want a clean background. So I'm going to, I'm going to work towards that. Uh, I'm, I spend more time positioning myself. I, I actually, okay, I'll give you the best tip. This is the hardest tip though. <laughs> it's the most, it's the most counterintuitive, counterintuitive thing I teach. And people look at me like I've had a lot to drink when I say this, but right. it's true. Find the background, then the bird. Yeah, no, I get that. It's the same in street photography. Find find exactly. a stage and then place your exactly. actors on the stage. I was just going to go there. Yeah, it's very much like street photography. You're like, oh, there's a cool shadow here. There's a cool shaft of light here. I'm just going to sit here and hope somebody walks through that. Well, when I find a clean background in nature, I got my little walk stool I sit on. I got my little bag blind I drop over myself. And I just sit and wait. And nine times out of ten, a bird will come and visit me. Because they know I will make them famous. <laughs> That's fantastic. I notice with um, a lot of your bird images that there you've got uh, motion blur. Uh, is that yeah, something I, that you like to do to create a sense of the emo- capturing how, what it felt like? I guess, or, or I go in spurts. I go mm-hmm. in spurts. Some, you know, some for a couple of years I'll do everything tack sharp. For a couple of years I'll do everything with motion blur. When it comes to birds in flight, one of my problems with getting everything right down to the last wingtip tack sharp, and I've done that, I got 100,000 eagle photographs like that, is that it looks almost fake. I mean, it looks like taxidermy. Whereas if there's just a touch of flare in the wings, just a tiny little bit of natural motion blur, everything else being sharp then you know that's a real bird he's flying that that's that conveys that sense of motion but that's just a it's an artistic choice no i get that it's kind of like it can be uh too clinical like you see a lot of um you know uh race uh photography racetrack photography where if you freeze the car coming around the corner it looks like it's parked yeah it's just parked (laughs) on the track that was the first thing i learned the actual first job i had in photography was doing motorsports because i grew up in indianapolis where the indianapolis 500 was you got lucky though that day didn't you what what happened do you want to tell us that story yeah well i'm a dumb kid my half sister is is married to the guy who's the sports editor at the Bloomington Herald Tribune newspaper, which is the second largest newspaper in the state of Indiana. He gets a all access pass to photograph the race, but they don't have any budget because they're a tiny newspaper really. And he goes, you want this? I know you're kind into photography. And you know, I had a Nikon FTN with a 50 millimeter lens (laughs) and I had taken a few pictures of like my buddies and you know, girls at school. And I didn't really have, I, I knew how to operate the camera. That was my, that was my qualification. But yeah, I said, sure, I'll go. And I went down there and because it was an all access pass and because the way these things work, it's major sporting events. Nikon saw me with the Nikon FTN. They saw that I had the all access pass, which is hard to get. They're like, Hey kid, you want to shoot with a Nikon F1 today? And I'm like, Sure. Now, I didn't even know what a Nikon F1 was. I had learned at a young age to just say yes to every opportunity and figure it out later. So they gave me my first motor drive. I mean, you could press the button and it would go like a frame and a half per second, which I just thought was the coolest thing in the world. And they gave me a 200 millimeter F4, which is the longest lens I'd ever used. And they said, go stand over there in the short shoot of turn 
two, between one and two. I did. So then the Associated Press guy comes and he sees me there with the Nikon stuff and the badge. He goes, hey, you want a string for us? I didn't know what a stringer was. I had no idea what that meant. I bet I just said yes. He brought me a bag with 400 rolls of Tri-X film, which was cool because I only had four rolls of film with me. I mean, I was a kid. I didn't have any money. I couldn't. I, four rolls of film wasn't going to get me very far, but that's what I brought. And so he goes, yeah, just take all the film out of this bag, shoot every car that goes by, put it in the other bag I'm going to give you. It's got your number on it. If you get any shots, then we'll pay you. Yeah. And then Tom Sneva had the wonderful, wonderful, wonderful sense to crash right in front of me right. while I happened to be going <laughs> and the picture was published everywhere. And I was like, I'm going to be a professional photographer. Now you sold that shot. Did you buy a car with the proceeds? Is that I true? could, I could know that the story is I could have, it would, I could have bought a brand new Camaro with the proceeds. Instead That's amazing. I bought, I bought camera gear. Yeah, but that is so amazing. And so, as the accident, like you wouldn't have even had time to realize what was happening in front of you because it's like that happened at my first Grand Prix. There was the most spectacular spill right in front of me and it feels like it's not happening. You're watching a movie or you're it's an out-of-body experience. Is that how it felt for you when it was like, oh my Listen, God. there isn't anybody on this planet that has less idea about what they're doing than I did that day. Yeah. I mean... I, you could fill an encyclopedia with what I did not know about photography, but it just, you know, worked out and that got, got me started. And then I ended up doing stuff for Hemings Motorsports News for a grand total of $52 and 50 cents a week, whether I needed it or not. I like that. I just said yes to everything. I, I hear a lot of photographers saying I got asked to do this engagement or this party or a headshot or a wedding. And I said, no, because I wasn't ready. What do you say to that? Oh man, there's only one way to get ready, which is to get busy. Mm. It, you know, here's the thing. I hate to be this blunt, but you know, what's the safest place in the world? Your couch. Yeah. When you're on the couch, you don't actually have to perform. Nobody expects anything of you. You don't actually have to deliver. So it's always better to go, yeah, if I had the same camera Scott did, I could make that shot, but I don't. So I'm just going to sit here. Mm. It's just get off the couch, grab what you got, go out there. Everybody that's listening to this show has a point of view. The thing that happens when you mature is you learn that sharing your point of view is okay. Mm. Even though we live in a world where people try to say, oh, you're being arrogant by telling us what you think. Well, I guess I'll be double arrogant and tell you I don't care that you think I should. I'm going to tell you what I think because it's my point of view and I'm going to be me because everybody else is taken. That's just the way it is. If you can get to that point, then it, it becomes less of an issue. Just get off the couch. And what ends up happening when you get thrust into situations that maybe you are uncomfortable with is that you do figure it out. If you, if this is where you're supposed to be, if you are taking the time to listen to a photography podcast, I assume that this is important to you. So every chance you get, take it, just take it. And if it doesn't work out, no one was going to kill you. It'll be, <laughs> it'll, it'll work out eventually one way or the other, but yeah, just go for it because you never know what will happen and what you'll learn. A comfort zone's a beautiful place, but nothing ever grows there. It's my favorite quote. Yeah. Yeah. A, a comfort zone along with a dollar 50, will get you a cup of coffee at Starbucks. That's it. <laughs> um, all right, I just want to get back to uh, some uh, wildlife photography tips. When when you are out there shooting birds and you're tracking uh, birds, 
Are you pre, so when you've, you've set up, you've got your beautiful backdrop that you've chosen, okay, mm-hmm. and you're sitting there, you've made yourself comfortable, you've got a cup of tea or a cup of coffee and you're waiting, are you pre-focusing because that's the spot I want the bird to come into or are you tracking? How does that work? It totally depends on the background. Right. One of the, one of the great things about Olympus cameras is their autofocus tracking is really quite good. Uh, for Micro Four Thirds camera, it's amazing. It's it's on par with a lot of the DSLRs, the top level DSLRs. It's an amazing advantage that I have. I can use tracking autofocus. So if I have a clean background, I don't have to do any kind of pre-focusing because I know the Olympus autofocus is trustworthy. I've banked on it for three years now. I've now been disappointed. So it'll do a good job. Now, if there's a busy background and the bird is flying and maybe the autofocus will have to decide, does he want the tree? Does he want the bird? Does he want the tree? Does he want the bird? Then I, I might have to think about pre-focusing, but I rarely do. I just I just narrow the autofocus selection points down to one or two or four or five. And then and then I'll I'll usually be able to track with the bird. It just mostly has to do with knowing your subject. I mean, I've studied as much about ornithology as I have photography so that I understand the way each particular bird species flaps their wings even. So I know what their flight patterns are and I can anticipate their movements and I pick them up just like in racing. Yeah. Pick up a car as it's coming through the first turn. You want to shoot it at the short shoot before it gets to the second turn. You acquire it in the first turn, get your hand on the trigger and start firing and then you pick up the shot that you want out of the middle. That's the way I do it. Same thing. It- it does become a rhythm, and I've found that with uh, photographing sport, you, a dance, anything that's moving fast, after a little while, it's it's and it's hard to explain, but it almost, and I know with my portrait photography, I know when I've got the shot, I know when it's sharp, and it's got nothing to do with the camera, it's intuitive, I feel it. Do you feel the same way with uh, your bird photography? It's, it's really another one of those things that people don't want to hear because what they want me to say is if you buy this lens, you'll yeah. become famous. Yeah. I love but, how you put the radio voice on that too. Thank you. <laughs> this lens right here, ladies and gentlemen, this is the one you really want. Not that other one, this one. You'll be amazed at how great your photography comes out. You'll be a National Geographic. It, it doesn't work that way because if it did, I would go buy the same golf clubs that Tiger Woods used to yeah. win the Masters. Um, or that same piano that Mozart was able to play on. I would just buy that and be good. I think where it starts is knowing your subject. Let's say that you're a, a baseball photographer. I don't know how popular baseball is in Australia. Maybe it's cricket or is that England? I'm uh, sorry. The majority I, of our listeners are actually U.S.-based, so okay. I think everyone's across baseball, but we have it here too. Okay, yeah. so if a baseball photographer and there's a guy on first, where do you point your lens? At second. Why? Because the shot everybody wants is the sweeping tag at second when the guy tries to steal. Right. If you put if you put the camera on the guy on first, you're going to be lagging behind the whole time. So knowing your subject matter is really key. Like I know when an eagle's sitting on a tree and he lifts his tail feathers and he defecates, he's fixing to fly. Because guess what? It turns out that flight is hard. You have to be very lightweight, even your poo will stop you from getting airborne. So they lift their tail feathers, they fly, I start pressing on the shutter button. I'm going to sound like thing. such an expert now. I'll be out in the wild I'll go, oh, that, that bird's about to fly now because it's just, <laughs> just had a crap. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, it's it's the it's the special things I study, bird poo. Um, but that, yeah, but that's, it, that's something many of the uh, um, animal photographers that I've interviewed have all said. You know, understand um, the animal, and that's ninety uh, percent of the work. You know, ears up, or, or what does licking lips say, and and all of these things are going to make you a better photographer. Just like understanding, uh, learning to read the room when you're photographing a portrait is going to make you a better portrait photographer. So it all makes perfect sense. If you really want to find out how tough this is, talk to people that photograph horses. Mm. Because the people that buy horse photographs are extraordinarily picky. And the ears have to be just like, just so perfect. I mean, it, 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 this stuff matters. These are the details. When you're around a pro like Tony Corbell, um, you know, someone who's a real artist, you'll see he poses the bride's fingers. He, he deals with everything. You know, my, I'm, I'm lucky to be friends with a lot of the best photographers in the world. My friend Jerry Guionis is one of the best wedding photographers in the world. And he's from Australia, by the way. We just interviewed his brother. Oh, yes, yeah. his brother's yeah. too. Anyway, um, I've been to Jerry's house. Uh, he's got more awards than I have chicken bones. He's, just, <laughs> he, he's uh, but I watch it. He'll just push, he'll push the pinky of the girl yeah. just a little bit to the left. He, you know, the guys that live and the gals that live in that space, these are the people doing the mastery work and it has nothing to do with their f-stop. It has everything to do with their understanding of light and people and story and how to tell a story. I, I, I will share one little quick thing I teach called Ed Fat. This is something that, uh, I, I learned from studying film school. It stands for entire details, focal length, angle, and time. Right. If you want to tell a story, think about shooting a motion picture. So watch a Kevin Costner Western. Kevin Costner makes great Western movies. Every single one of them starts with a big establishing shot, a big valley scene. You see the whole valley. You see the whole mountain range. He's, he's, this is the, his, this is the, E in Ed Fat, the entire. He's letting you know where this is taking place. Then he'll move right to detail. So the next shot might be a cowboy's spur in the boot, not the horse, not the whole cowboy, just the spur in the boot. That's the D in Ed Fat, the details. Okay. F, fan, uh, focal length. He'll shoot it wide and then he'll shoot it long just so he has coverage of both. So he'll work it with a 17 millimeter lens and a 300 millimeter lens. Okay. Angle. He'll shoot it from. Uh, a, a cherry picker up high, he'll shoot it laying down on the ground, he'll shoot it straight on. So he has different coverage from different angles. So the backgrounds are different, so he has lots to choose from. Time, he'll use a fast shutter speed, a slow shutter speed. He'll do slow motion, fast motion. He'll freeze action, he'll blur action. So Ed Fat, entire details, focal length, angle, time. This is how I approach storytelling in photography, and I, I'm trying to compress four and a half decades of experience into five minutes, but if you can start to think about these things, and I, I hope that your audience is picking up on the fact that we're not spending much time talking about F-stops, no. talking about all this other stuff that really counts, and it does disappoint some people because they do hope that it's just a matter of F-stops. What's the magic formula for getting that shot? I, I actually love that description that you just gave about the Kevin Costner. I can't for the life of me think of the... I, I, um, a name of a Western that he did. I can name other, like Field of Dreams and uh, what, what, what was the water one that he did? What, what's a Western? Can you name a Western, that Kevin Costner Western? Um, actually, now that you said that, I can't say the name. <laughs> right. But does uh, that dance, apply to all his movies? Does he do it dances, in all? Dances, dances with Wolves. Right. Yes. I, I'm going to now go um, and rewatch that with uh, keeping yeah. that in mind. Actually, I just love make a, that. Listen, 
I train people to do this, watch a movie with a notepad and, and then actually create tables for ed, ed fat, entire details, focal length, angle time, and start keeping track of with tick marks each shot. And you'll see how this actually builds out into an entire movie. That's brilliant. That's fantastic. I, I love that, Scott. I, I just oh, love oh, that description. Fantastic. Amazing. Um, all right, one more question. Um, I mean, I could go for four hours, but I, I realize you, you, you're about to travel, so uh, I, I don't want to keep you too long. But if you could take one last image, one last bird image, what would it be? Hmm. Well, you know, as a birder, we have birds we call nemesis birds. We have life birds, which are birds that are on our list. That means we've seen the bird. Then we have nemesis birds. And nemesis birds are birds we've never been able to see or photograph in my case. And in my case, it's a beautiful bird called a painted bunting. These birds hate me. If I'm in the vicinity, they will migrate away early. They will leave. They will abandon their young. They will abandon their nests. They will just give up because they don't want me to get a photograph of them. So just a nice, simple portrait of a painted bunting and I'd be good. You'd be happy with that? I would. Brilliant. Or a belted, or a belted kingfisher. That's my other nemesis bird. Fantastic. Um, Scott, it's been amazing uh, chatting with you today. Uh, thanks so much for your time. Just before you go, where can people find you? I mean, there's a million sites, but where are the best <laughs> places? And you've got... A couple of podcasts, is that right? Well, yeah, I work with my friend Marco LaRousse on the PPN, the professional podcast network, the photography podcast network that he and I co-founded, but I'm very rarely on there anymore. Mm. I'm on there once in a while. Um, I'm on a show actually in a couple of weeks there. I do occasionally do guest spots on the twit.tv network with my friend Leo Laporte on things like the new screensavers, but where you can reliably find me every month is at picturemethods.com. And also, I update the blog there three to four times a week with free photography content. There's more than 150 articles there already. Mm. It's always been free, always going to be free. And uh, then, of course, I'm on Twitter at Scott Bourne, Facebook at Scott Bourne. For some reason, I'm on Instagram at Bourne.Scott. I have no idea why. Right. And then I, I sell my prints at uh, ScottBourne.Photos. So there you go. That's a whole bunch. Fantastic. And uh, yeah, do check out the, the, the websites. The, 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 like your, your essays are beautifully written and uh, your images are, are amazing. So thank, thank you so much for today. And I, I'd, I'd love to have you back on again because I've got uh, three million other questions that I didn't have time to ask. Well, I'm, I'm grateful that you wanted to talk with me and I hope I was able to uh provide some value and, and I'm, I'm thankful that uh, I got to talk with you. So maybe we'll do it again sometime. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Scott. Okay. There we go. Scott Bourne. Fascinating. So cool. And his images are so cool. You know, I love birds and I have actually been shooting some birds today, but they're not like the birds Scott shoots. <laughs> what have you been shooting, Val? Well, I've been shooting my artwork and you... Oh, you have birds in your artwork. artwork. What are yours? Yeah. You, you do... Um, hum I do hummingbirds. Hum hummingbirds. I do, yeah, budgies. I do, like, variety of birds and butterflies and dragonflies. So I do th have things that fly. But they are very, very different and they don't move. <laughs> so my shooting today was probably a lot easier than 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 Scott's. You wouldn't anyway. spend thirteen years 
um, staking out the perfect yeah. shot, would you, Val? I would not. No. I have to be honest. So no. respect to Scott. Thanks, yeah. thanks for that interview. <laughs> Absolutely. So what are you doing in the coming week, Gina? Oh, I've got so much on, Val. And you know what's the best about this time what? of the year? Like we survived the winter, Val. I we know. survived. Like you guys, come on. I don't think you can complain up, up north. Well, no. It wasn't that bad. It was freezing down here. But it's like the days are just getting that little bit longer. Yes. The sunsets are beautiful. I actually uh, prefer um, spring and autumn just because of the angle of the sun, you get beautiful sunsets. There's still a little bit of haze. You get the coolish nights and then you get the warmer days. But it's just been so beautiful to see blue skies and it just makes me happy, Val. What about you? What do you got going on? Well, even though I have not had a winter as cold as yours, it is still cold for our standards. And, um, yeah, I love the fact that I did not have to wear a coat today. So, yes, spring is around the corner over here. For all of our Northern Hemisphere people, I know that you're going to go into autumn or fall, as I guess Americans call it. Uh, but yes, we'll we'll be getting very excited at longer days. Which yes, is, which is very cool. <laughs> Have you got your Aussie slang of the week, Gina? Uh, not for this week. No. Did you forget? Uh, hang on a sec. Let me Let's just think. What's a good one? All um... right, I've got one. Oh, okay. Okay, so uh, tracky dacks. Tracky dacks. Oh, tracky dacks. So tracky dacks is a slang term uh, for tracksuit pants or trousers, mm. right? And well, they're, they're tracksuit pants. They're tracksuit pants, but we don't, of course, in Australia, we don't call them tracksuit pants. We call them wearing your tracky dacks or trackies for sure. Or tr- you wear your trackies, and also you can. We also refer to underwear, the garments that you wear under those pants, uh, mm. or your knickers, uh, mm. as under dacks or your dacks. So, <laughs> and dacks also refers to can be pants, just to make it more confusing. So, <laughs> you wear your tracky dacks underneath. You wear your under dacks. So it all makes it's 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 it. There's there's a you know it all makes sense, doesn't it? So you know what what it's also I, this is one I learned today because I don't. My partner said um, I'm going to get minimum chips. Do you did you have minimum chips yeah, in Victoria? Yeah, it used to be twenty really? cents uh, minimum chips. Yeah. Did so you would order minimum chips? Yeah, he's a Victorian originally. So you so that's, well yeah. Tasmanian. Oh. So you you explain what minimum chips means because so, this is not a term that is in New South Wales. Which so is when the you state went to from. the fish and chip shop, which was like, is there another term for that? Is that have I just used Aussie slang then? The fish and yeah, chip yeah, shop. Yeah, fish and chip shop. Yeah. Everyone has them, don't they? I don't know. Well, they do in the UK. The so UK. So. So for maybe uh, other listeners that aren't sure, it's a it's a it's a, a takeaway it sells place fish and where chips. they they sell <laughs> uh, fish and chips or fries, <laughs> not not potato chips, but like French fries. But they're thick, they're thick they're cut, thick cut, and chips. often the best ones are hand cut. Uh, mm. I don't think a lot of people do that. And the minimum chips when I was a kid. Uh, was twenty cents, I think, was the minimum. So you'd go down there with um. Why you know, can't you 30 just say cents. small chips? Uh, because there was a minimum set, and I, I I don't know what it is. I haven't had fish and chips for so long. I think it might be a couple of dollars now, and you, that's the minimum. That's the the least amount of chips that you can have. 
Because my partner said that you could say I'll have you can have minimum chips, or you yeah. could say thirty cents worth of chips, or fifty yeah. cents worth of yeah. chips, yeah. or two dollars worth yeah. of chips. Yeah. You, we didn't have that. We just had, you know, small chips or large chips. Yeah, and it's amazing because it's like he, the thing about Australia is, uh, even though we're all Australian here, you go from state to state. It's like mm. you've gone to another country in terms of some of the the traditions that uh, each state has. So as you go further south, you have min- minimum chips. As you go further north, you've got to pay whatever the set price is. And then if when you go further south, you have hard rubbish, whereas, yes. which is the bizarrest My term favorite in day the of world. Because why is the rubbish hard? Because here we call it council pickup because the council picks it up, which kind of really oh, makes far more sense. You and your fancy terms, hard rubbish <laughs> it makes sense because it's not, it's not um, – uh, green rubbish uh, like uh, food scraps and things like that that go into the uh, that that go into uh, into the tip and then eventually that will all break down and become compost and you can grow trees and things in it. Hard rubbish is things like furniture okay. and things that will never break down and it needs to go to a like the um, you know somewhere else. Okay, so, listeners, bet that, that you didn't expect Everyone's to have this now. conversation they're, they're on a photography gone, Val. podcast. No one's listening anymore. Hard <laughs> rubbish is, uh, if you still listen to this bit, hard rubbish is the uh, code word posted in the So You Want to Be a Photographer podcast uh, community group. Um, hello on to Facebook. all that. Yeah, on Facebook. So just hello search, to all the new Just listeners. go to Facebook and search for So You Want to Be a Photographer podcast community. It's free to join. We'd love to have you in there. In the meantime, where do we find you online, Gina? So you can find me at uh, ginamilitia.com. That's G-I-N-A-M-I-L-I-C-I-A. I'm at Gina Militia on all social media. And if you want to take your photography to the next level, then I'd love the opportunity to work with you guys. And you can find me in the gold community. So just go to ginamilitia.com and click on join the community. What about you, Val? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. I'm going out to get minimum of chips. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Photographer. For more information, free resources, and Gina's regular newsletter on everything you need to know to become a successful photographer, visit GinaMilitia.com.